Good morning, Summit Church. My name is John Lau. I'm one of the elders here. I'm going to move some of the stuff. I tend to talk with my hands, so I don't want to knock anything over. Um, one of the elders here, and uh, have the, the privilege this morning to, uh, to bring us into John 7. Before we get going, uh, we did a lot of call and response last week from Kent, and so I know you guys have a lot of volume. Uh, and I want you to think about like the biggest disappointing groan you can muster, right? And we're all going to do that together on the count of three. So I'm going to count to three, and then we're all just going to let out this tremendous groan. If you're around kids, you know exactly what that sounds like. So just emulate that. Uh, and we're going to go, I'm going to count to three and then groan. So one, two, three. Uh. So I start with that to let you all know that uh, unlike last time, I don't have any awesome visual aids like a giant level. Um, or a cornerstone, um, and so I bring that disappointing news that I don't have these really cool uh, visual aids this week for you, um, and by the lack of a groan, I can see that uh, my disappointment uh, is, 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 or the, your disappointment is, is not as bad as I thought it would be, so that's good, that I know what the benchmark is, and you, just, you guys did not reach that. Um, but we are going to uh, go back to chapter 7. If you've been with uh, tracking with us at SOMA here for the last couple of months, really since the start of the year, you know we've been working our way through the book of John. And as Kent pointed out last week, we took the last two weeks, so um, uh, Palm Sunday and then Easter, to speed up towards the end of the book to grab those parts of the text that matched with the uh, the weeks that we were walking through, and as Kent pointed out last week, we didn't do the old one, two, skip a few, 99, 100. We always intended to go back and uh, pick up where we left off and continue on uh, through here to the spring and into the summer. So we're coming back to, uh, to John 7 after we've been a couple other places in the book of John, and we're going to uh, unpack a couple of things here today with uh, Jesus' planning, and I've got a few slides that Josh uh, threw together for me. Thank you, Josh. Um, that uh, what we're going to be spending our time with here today is Jesus is planning to attend the Feast of Booths, as well as Jesus' teaching during the Feast of Booths. Um, so the, I love this passage because as we start to unpack this, this first area of, of Jesus' planning on uh, attending or whether he's going or not going to attend the Feast of Booths, I love these passages within Scripture that talk about Jesus not going somewhere or going around somewhere uh, because uh, he, he knows that there are people that are seeking to kill him. And I, I, if you're like me, and I think you know, some of the, the Jews of the day were, were of this mindset, that, that it, it kind of floors me because I put my expectations on Jesus that he is going to be this almighty warrior, that he would have no fear. Why would he go around? Like, he knows what's coming. He's going to get killed anyway. So what does it matter to him of whether these people want to kill him or not? He knows what's happening, right? Um, and so it just, it, it baffles me when I think, wait, why, why, is he, why is he not going? Because they're seeking to kill him? He, know, he knows the end, right? Um, but that's not what we see here. We, not, we don't see him operating out of fear. We don't see him saying that they want to kill me, so I'm not going to go so that I'm not killed yet. And that's the, what we're seeing here, is that we're understanding that Christ's action, or in this case, him not going 
to Judea, because there's those that are seeking to kill him, is not a reaction against his fear. Because if we look at Christ's resume, we see that one of the first things that he does is that he goes out and fasts in the wilderness for 40 days. He's tempted by the devil. And I don't know about you, but I don't think I could stand up to that kind of scrutiny. But we're clearly dealing with a guy that has been through a lot of trials, tribulations. He knows what's coming. So he's not afraid. He's not afraid to, uh, of people that are going to kill him. Time and time again, they, they want to seize him. That's also my other favorite part of this passage. We don't have time, too much time to pack. Is that they want to seize him, but they, cu- they couldn't. It's like, are they like trying to grab him and their arms are frozen? It's like a Zach Morris timeout and he just like walks away. Or are they just like dumbfounded and they don't know what, um, what, what just happened and he just kind of walks out and nobody seizes him? Um, but we're clearly dealing with uh, Christ that's not afraid of death. He's not afraid from pain being delivered by man. But he knew his purpose. He knew his purpose was to complete the will of the Father. So he chooses in this moment not to go to Judea. What this means, what this looks like, I think for us, from a couple of personal examples, um, is that adopting an idea of God made dirt, it won't hurt mentality um, is not a correct way to think about it. That we can, um, that not believing that, that God can, uh, not, not because we, that, that believing that God can protect us from any and all situations is wrong. That's definitely true. That's in within the character of God. He can protect us in any and all situations. But what we see Christ do here, and what we can also do is discern the will of God to understand the role, the timing, the place, and the actions that he has for us. So, like I said, a couple examples of what that's looked like for me uh, if you don't know my family, uh, my, my wife and, and I have lived on the Near East Side downtown area since 2009. And so you've probably had similar experiences to the ones I'm about to describe um, if you've been in the city for, for long enough. But just a couple of months ago, my wife and, and family and I, we were in the car coming home from, I think, a friend's house. It was late at night. Uh, we were coming, getting off the highway and heading east on Washington Street, and we could see down the street that there were a ton of cop cars over by Willard Park. And somebody in the car said, let's go check and see what's going on over there. I mean, there was a lot of red and, and, and blue lights over there. And it's nine o'clock at night, I'm like, that seems like a bad idea. So we go home and I pull up Citizens, which probably some of you are, are on as well. And uh, what was happening down at Willard Park was that uh, there was um, either an attempted or some sort of investigation around a shooting. And so the cops are over there trying to, I think, still apprehend somebody or, or investigate what was going on. Um, and me going down there, I have no value to add to that situation. There's tremendously more. I'm, I work in, in the insurance industry. I have no law enforcement capabilities uh, to speak of. I'm not a detective. And um, me being involved in that situation to say, all right, guys, let me help. Let me get my hands dirty. I think I can, I'm not afraid. I can figure out, help you guys figure this out. It has no purpose for me to be there. Another example. This was probably about a year ago. Um, I have got those ring cameras around my house. And I've got one over our driveway. And my wife and I were getting ready for bed one night. 
And just as we were about ready to, to fall asleep, I got an alert on my phone that there was somebody in our driveway. Now, mostly it's a cat. We have so many cats around that it's picks those, it thinks they're people. I don't know why. Super annoying. Uh, but this time, there actually was a person in our driveway. And uh, he was checking our, our gates, and they were all locked. Um, but he ended up grabbing our ring, like, security sign that's right by our garage door and starts to walk off with it. Like, I don't know what the heck you're going to do with this sign. Like, why you choose this to, to steal uh, of all the things you could pick off of from an alley. But he starts to walk away from it. And I'm like, well, that sign's stupid expensive. They're like, they're like 40 bucks. So I'm like, all right. And the idea that I, I didn't like the fact that, he, that somebody could come into uh, my driveway and think, like, no one's going to know that I was here. No one's going to see me. And so uh, I throw in my, my slides. And... Um, I'm going to go and ask, you know, confront this guy, probably 11 o'clock at night. So I make my way down to the end of our driveway. Um, and at that point, the guy's probably four or five houses down the alley. And I just yell out a simple question. Hey, are you going to bring my sign back? And he turns around, uh, mumbles something, and he was like, yeah, 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 I'll bring it back. Um, and like, we have probably a good 75 feet between us. And I think that's a pretty good distance. I want to maintain that. So I start to, if he comes back up to the driveway, I mean, if anybody's willing to steal a random sign, I don't want to get super close to that person 11 o'clock at night. So I start to back up my driveway. And uh, then I'm like sitting at the, the gate, uh, the, the, the gate entrance, which is right by my door. So if anything happens, I can um, you know, shut the door, lock it behind me, what have you. He comes to my driveway, starts to work. I'm like, no, buddy, that's, that's good. Just drop, the, drop it there at the end of the driveway, and we'll be good. He drops it, and he works it, and he starts moving on. And, you know, I bring up the, a couple of those situations because I can't add any value to searching for shooting suspects. And... A guy stealing my sign, it's probably 40 bucks, it's a 12 inch piece of plastic. Honestly, if he said, when I asked him, are you gonna bring that back? And he said no and kept on walking, I'm gonna let him take it. Because it's a 12 inch piece of plastic. And my wife and I have lived down here on the Near East Side since 2009 with the mission and purpose to live, worship, share the gospel uh, to the downtown and Near East Side area. So doing these calculations in my head I start to realize the 12-inch piece of plastic worth compromising that mission is showing up to uh, an area with eight cop cars, not knowing what's happening. Is that worth jeopardizing the mission and the purpose that God's given my family? So for me, I decided, no, there might be a time um, that the Lord calls us into, calls me into a situation where the thing I have to do is to, to intervene in a way that um, I'm not expecting. Um, I hope and pray that that doesn't happen, but at the time, I hope I'm ready if, if, if he calls me to do that. But we see the same thing that Jesus is doing is he's calculating. He knows the long game. He knows what the mission and purpose that he was given from the Father and that he knows he has stuff to do. And so for him to say, yeah, well, sure, I can walk into any situation. I'm Jesus doesn't take account for the whole purpose of why he's here. So I've put 
I bring this up because it's an example of how I've put my expectations on Christ to say, wait, why aren't you just going? Without recognizing that the way that he operates, the way that he thinks about his mission and purpose is what is good. And he defines his expectations. So we find him avoiding Judea during the Feast of Booths. And this is significant um, because... Um, it's a very significant celebration and holiday. I've got some, if you're like me, you're probably not up to date on your Jewish festivals. Uh, so I've got a slide up here that talks about what the Feast of Booths is. If you can go back one, there we go. So uh, Feast of Booths, also known as a couple of different things, but also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, it typically took place, takes place around late to mid-October by our calendar, uh, up there, the, the Hebrew calendar, and, and takes place five days after the Day of Atonement. Fall harvest had just been completed, and um, it was actually the, the, the last feast that the Lord uh, commanded and gave Israel to observe. So what this looked like, it was a pilgrim feast. There were three of those, and we're going to get to that in a second. But what this meant was that, um, that the men would travel from wherever they were to Jerusalem to observe this feast. And they brought their, their offerings uh, to the temple. So you can see how that was going to be particularly important so that um, the, uh, the nation of Israel was getting paid. And uh, they had... Uh, an eight-day period of sacrifices that required all 24 divisions of priests and things to be presented, to be present to help uh, administer the sacrifices in this process. Also, they, they, they lived in booths, these little structures that they would build made up of branches. A lot of times they had like an open, open roof. And uh, if you go to the next slide, the whole purpose of this was to, uh, to celebrate God's provision. It was a reminder of the time that they spent in the wilderness where God provided them with everything that they needed. Also, in the, the near term, it's the completion of the harvest. So they're celebrating uh, the harvest that the Lord had given them throughout the winter. And um, we look at the three pilgrim feasts as, uh, as, as, as symbolic. A lot of the Messianic Jews, those... Uh, Jews that, that do believe that Christ, that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, um, will look at these three feasts also as very symbolic, but based on the, the time, place, and symbolism that we know that we just observed, you know, the, the Passover, um, and as, as symbolic of Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross, uh, we also look at uh, Pentecost, which occurs at the beginning of the Feast of Weeks as a time of Jesus' ascension. Um, and then um, Messianic Jews will also look at the Feast of, of Booths as not only celebration of God's provision, but his provision of a Messiah. And then now as the second, as the second coming of Christ. So if somebody were to say, proclaim to be the Messiah during the Feast of Booths, where they're looking at God's provision, and they're all waiting for this Messiah to show up, it's going to get some attention. Because that's what they're all true, they're celebrating the harvest, yes, they're recognizing God's provision in the wilderness. They're also hopeful and anticipating the provision of the Messiah that was promised. So I think because of this, we see the advice that is given from Jesus' brothers as we continue on in the text. So the advice that, uh, that Jesus' brothers give 
say, come go to Judea. Now, why they do this, I think there's two main possible intentions that the brothers had. And it's really not necessarily important about which one is uh, their their true intentions because they still have the same common theme of mismatched expectations of who Jesus was and what his purpose was to Israel and humankind. But if we look at what the positive intentions might be, we look at the recommendation from Jesus' brothers, we we might read something like a, a marketing or a PR consultant trying to seize the opportunity to maximize the further movement of the cause, right? To say, they, the, 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 the Christians in Judea need to see you. They need to, their disciples need to see you, Jesus. And this is a time that you can be promoted, that you can show the world, that you can be that, uh, that, that, that Messiah that has been promised to these people. You can show yourself. And what a great opportunity to really capitalize on the Feast of Booths. We also know about these brothers that they, at least at this time, were not believing on who Jesus was. They obviously got a sense that he was a big deal, but didn't believe that he was the Messiah. So if they, looking through that lens, they might have had some negative intent, saying, Jesus, you're neglecting your disciples in Jerusalem. You need to go see him. That they're telling Christ who he should be. That he needs to promote himself. Maybe even they're setting him up to, let's test your ability. That if you're really who you say you are, what better place to show it than during the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem with all the weight. I mean, this is game seven of the NBA Finals, right? That do it now. Big time players step up at big time games, right, Dante? He knows it. So maybe they're saying, you know what? If you can do it there, then... We'll believe you. If you don't, you're going to get killed. We were right all along. No harm, no foul. They move on with their lives. But regardless of whether intent, whether it was positive, whether it was negative, we look at either scenario, and they were looking through a lens of what they expected from Messiah. A leader of divine power that people will follow. An opportunity to say, Jesus, if you are who you say you are, and if you market it correctly, you can really make a name for yourself here. The Feast of Booths is how we launch your messianic campaign and that will liberate us from Rome. That's the lens that they're looking at Jesus through. When we look at Jesus' response, verses 6 through 9, that his time is it wasn't now, but that they could go. He uses a similar phrase to address in this moment that he addressed his mother at the wedding of Cana, and we'll, we'll circle back to that later on. But that he also addresses that Christ had a purpose, that it was not his own, it was given to him, and his choice was to obey. He tells them that the world hates him because he shows them their wickedness. He continually, because as we've read throughout the book of John, Christ continually is turning things on their heads. He's taking everything that Israel and Jews that uh, have been living under the law are living into and judging each other on. He's turning those things upside down. 
They're not too fond of it. And so Jesus has explained to them, your expectations and mine of what this Feast of Booths is going to be are mismatched. He's the fulfillment of everything, the text that the Jews should be looking for, but he wasn't the vision of what the Jews were desiring. What this means to us today is that if you, if you didn't hear Tim's sermon a couple weeks ago, I highly recommend to circle back. He outlines a couple of ways that we put expectations on who we want Jesus to be. Uh, things like the rebel or the hippie. Uh, great, great analogy that he brought to that. Um, but we can also look at this of, of how we operate now is that we still bring our expectations to God. That we are still the marketing executives pitching to God. You know, God, you could really show your power by dropping another K in my bank account. That would be a miracle. You can really show your power by sliding that promotion my way. You can show your power by that new guy or girl that showed up to church this Sunday. Just go ahead and make them my spouse. That would show your power. It would show your power if you can just make my kids sleep all the way through the night. That would show your power. We can even do this on a spiritual level, too, to say, God, you heal my family member. And I tell them that I pray that they would be healed. They'll know it's from you. And I won't have to say it. I just get to stand there and say, told you so. In all these situations that I just listed, and the advice that even the brothers of, of Jesus that gave him involved people putting their expectations on Jesus for their benefit. Jesus saw this. So his response is that he stayed in Galilee for a time. And then he went up. He went up in private, I think, because he went with the right heart. He knew that the purpose of the Feast of Booths was to observe and reflect on the provision from God, his Father. And to not to, purpose was to, to gain fame and to gain glory, so he went alone. We also see that Jesus was the talk of the town, that uh, he was the buzz. So let's take a look at the things that Jesus was saying uh, as those were talking about him. We're going to look at a couple of different um, of things, but before we do, whenever, whenever we look at the, these teachings where Christ is addressing a crowd, um, I always love to remind myself that I feel like I have the privilege of hindsight, that looking at how the whole, all the Gospels play out, I'm able to see, like, I know how the story ends. And so, all of the things that Jesus is saying, it's like, you look at the disciples, you look at those that he's talking to, and you're like, duh, can't you get this? But if you've also put yourself in the shoes of the people that are sitting there, some of the stuff that he says is kind of confusing. I liken it to, uh, if anybody's familiar with Yogi Berra, now, I'm not talking about Yogi Bear, the cartoon of, uh, that steals picnic baskets in Jellystone National Park, uh, Yogi Berra was a catcher that played for the New York Yankees, uh, later on a, a manager as well. 
uh, three-time MVP. And uh, growing up, my family always loved to talk about Yogi Berra because he had these ridiculous quotes that made a lot of sense when you think about them, but also in the same right were highly confusing. So I threw a couple up there just as an example of this is the, sometimes the lens that these people sitting at the time of Jesus might be, be thinking of, saying like, you can observe a lot by, just by watching. It's deja vu all over again. Well, duh. It ain't over till it's over. Okay, that's completely obvious. Also struggled with math. Uh, baseball is 90% mental and the other half is physical. Uh, nobody goes there any day. Nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded, which is true, right? I mean, you look at some of the popular restaurants, it's like, ah, you know, I don't want to go there. It's always packed. Nobody goes there anymore. You pair up in threes. And I get what he's saying, but it also doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So that's just a, a I guess, a, a quick aside of sometimes when I'm looking at the way that Jesus is teaching, I try to at least put myself in the shoes of the people that are hearing to say, some of the stuff that we're about to unpack doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And it doesn't make a lot of sense because oftentimes these people were putting their expectations and looking through a lens of who they needed Jesus to be, but they, how they expected him to show up. So we're going to look at a couple, couple of the questions, objections, responses that we get from the crowd that Jesus is talking to. Um, the first thing, the one that we're going to look at is in verse 20, where he says that the crowd says, you have a demon who's seeking to kill you. And um, it's, it's kind of funny. Like, I feel like you can read into the, the, the people that are saying this, like, oh, no, Jesus, you're crazy. We're not trying to kill you. Like, who, who's saying that? And we know that later on in the text, two more times, they overtly call him and say that you have a demon, Jesus. That, literally, that is a back and forth conversation they have. And we also know that from a couple of verses before that there's a lot of chatter going on about Jesus at this time. Some say he's a good guy. Some say he's divisive. He's a bad guy. Some say he's breaking the law. Some say that probably kill him, that this buzz was going around. And obviously Jesus knew this, but they're pretending, oh, what do you mean? I'm not trying to kill you except for the fact that we think that uh, you broke the law by healing a man on the Sabbath. And so Jesus' response was that he reminds them that they circumcised on the Sabbath to keep the law of Moses, that they believe that circumcision supersedes the law that was given to them uh, to keep on the Sabbath. And that he doesn't bring this up as a, a battle of, of like moral relativism of of, well, yours is, yours is wrong, so I can be wrong too, or yours is right, so I can do it too. Um, but it's a reminder of, of, of who the judge is and what he's going to be judging on. Because they ke are keeping a law presented to them by Moses um, that involved cutting off hidden flesh to mark that they were following the law, that they were in uh, the people of God but then condemning Jesus Christ for a miracle from God to heal a whole man and whose life is now living proof and walking proof of God's power. 
And he could have stopped there. He could have just said, you know, this, as, a, as an appeasement to the Jewish leaders to say, all right, like, you know, these are, these are equal. But he, you know, as Jesus does, likes to flip things on his head. And he really doubles down on it. He says, um, by saying that the adoption in, now into the judge's family is no longer marked by the outward appearance. That you superseding the, the Sabbath by circumcision, like there's a new covenant coming. And it's not going to be marked by that. The expectations that you have on how you're going to be identified, what the uh, standard is of obeying God is going to be changing. The other objection, another objection that we see that comes up is in verse 27, um, where they say, but we know where this man comes from. What, that, what they're referring to is that the prevailing view at that time, was that, that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem or from places unknown. We know this by, as we'll get to um, later on, uh, possibly next week, in verse 52, says that, uh, has not the scripture said that the Christ become, that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? It also says, and if you look back to 642, says that they knew that his, meaning Jesus' earthly father, was Joseph. So they knew he was a Galilean from Nazareth. They beg this question, we know where he comes from. And I love how Jesus responds, because it's also not the expectation that I would have had. My response to this would be, and the expectation I would put on said, this is a great gotcha moment, right? Because he's like, oh, supposed to come from Bethlehem, eh? Well, let me tell you a story about a lady riding into a donkey, uh, on a donkey, because uh, Caesar needed people to be registered. And so, actually, my parents ended up in Bethlehem, and oh, my, by the way, my birth certificate says Bethlehem on it. So, gotcha. But he doesn't do that, right? That would have been like the perfect moment to say, like, you're supposed to come from Bethlehem if you're the Messiah. And he's like, ha gotcha. But he doesn't. He refers to his, not his earthly origins, but his spiritual origins, his actual origins of where Christ comes from, his divinity, that he comes from a place that you don't know. From a father, you haven't experienced the way that I've experienced, and he sent me here on a mission. So again, we see the mismatched expectations of where the Messiah will come from and what Jesus is teaching. Another area uh, is verse 15 question that they posed to Jesus since the first one is that this man has learning, but he's never studied. They're baffled. This is their first reaction to Jesus' teaching before they resort to some more just technicalities as he crushes them. Because Jesus didn't meet their expectation of what a learned teacher, how a learned teacher should be trained. My guess is he didn't show up any five-star scouting reports in, in uh, rabbinical school. He wasn't a a rising star making his way through the minor leagues. Um, so he wasn't on the radars of, and knowing, oh, oh he's, uh, you know, he's from a, a blue blood uh, university here. So yeah, his teaching is, is spot on because I know who he studied under. Oh, he's from Duke, North Carolina. Like, oh, they're always got a good team. So they always put out good players. So his, his response is that his teaching is from God who sent him. And that if you seek God, you will understand if I'm speaking on my own authority 
or if I'm testifying to God's authority. And he gives us the model of how. I love this part because, like, yeah, well, how do you know? There's lots of people that have said, like, hey, this is for God, and it's not. There's a lot of dark history within, uh, within church history where people are proclaiming to do things in the name of the Lord um, that don't match up with the will of God. You've probably experienced that in your own life as well. Um, I know that a lot of people have church hurt in this room, so maybe that's part of your story. So I love that verse 18, Christ tells us, like, those who speak on their own authority seek their own glory. Believe the one who seeks the glory of God. But if you seek your own glory, you are not aligned with the will of God. Because God's will brings God glory. God-centric. It places him at the middle. Man's will brings man glory. Man-centric. It makes man the definer of things. It puts man at the center. It places man in position to define their expectations of what God should be. How we see this lived out, Jesus' response to this to say, hey, I'm modeling this for you, is that see that Jesus does the will of God by not going headfirst into the Jews that want to kill him, despite their expectations that he should, maybe the expectations that you or I may have for Jesus as this fearless fighter, because he knows that there are things that he has to do because God's plan brings God glory. Jesus also does the will of God by communicating that under the new covenant, judgment won't include Jewish leaders' expectations of judging based on Old Testament law, but they're not going to judge on Old Testament law because God's new covenant of salvation brings God glory. He does the will of God as he operates within the timing and purpose given to him. As we circle back to the wedding of Cana, in the wedding of Cana, he asserts that no one determines the timing of his earthly ministry, yet he performs his first miracle as um, turning the water into wine. And this whole situation was, was brought to him uh, through the attention of his mother. As we look at the result of that same interaction, that he performs his first miracle in an understated way, he doesn't get the credit, nor does his mother even get the credit. But it's, the credit is, 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 at least from those that, that, that seem to, to, to see what happens, seems to go to the, the hosts. We all know, obviously, that the ultimate credit know, goes and shows that God's power is, that it shows his glory. Whereas in this situation, in this passage, he communicates the same thing to, the, to his brother saying, you don't dictate my timing. You don't dictate God's timing in this because I'm going to do the will of the Father. And that their plan involved Christ fulfilling their expectations of him, which helps them or maybe it just helps test Christ's divinity and gives them the answer to the questions they have from Jesus. All these examples of Jesus living out the will of God that results in God's glory, and many more throughout the book of John, we consistently see the mismatched expectations people had of Jesus. 
Now, you and I are familiar with mismatched expectations. Whether you know it or not, a lot of times um, I see this prevalent in myself or in family members or uh, when we're um, working on shepherding or care issues within the body that mismatched expectations often uh, are, are evident in our lives because they breed conflict or disappointment. We see this happen at our works, at our workplaces with our bosses, with our coworkers, sometimes with our customers. Maybe spouses, parents, friends have this mismatched expectations. I thought you were going to do this because I thought you could read my mind. Turns out you can't read minds. And so you did this other thing. And now we're all ticked at each other because from the jump, our, expect, our expectations didn't, didn't match. They were there was never going to be success here because we had the different end in mind. So usually the remedy to kind of work through those mismatched expectations is, is a mix of better communication and des of desired outcomes and a compromise from both parties, right? That you can work through if we can communicate better, then we can get aligned on what is the desired outcome so we can have a better match. It doesn't work here, though. Using that same principle to apply this with God's will and God's purpose and God's glory doesn't work because God's glory is the expectation. We don't have a place to say, well, God, my, my expectations are this. So if you can just tweak yours a bit, then maybe we can be on the same page. It doesn't work that way because that doesn't bring him the glory. When we put man-centric expectations on a triune God, we subvert the will of God. Because we are deciding what timing is best. We decide what our purpose is. We decide how to define things in heaven and earth. And in doing so, we are attempting to diminish the glory of God, which can never be diminished. So the standard here when applying the expectations is, as Christ said, is to do the will of the Father and do his, you know you're doing that when you are meeting his expectations, which bring him glory. Not trying to leverage or negotiate the king of the universe to say, well, they just need a little bit of this from you, and then I think our expectations are aligned. You can just change who this about you. It's really going to work out better for me, and we can all move forward. It doesn't work that way. The perfect God, who's all-powerful, holds everything in his hand, and deserves all the glory that he, does, that he gets. But we have hope. When we look at the last objection we raised in our text today, because... He outlines that people aren't that some people aren't going to notice this. That he identifies that you're not going to see me. I'm going to go away. You're not coming because you're not going to do the will of the Father. You're not going to recognize what brings God glory in this new covenant, meaning that the viewing uh, Christ as the Lord and Savior through His death and resurrection. That there are going to be people that don't meet that expectation, that aren't doing the will of God. 
And so he's going to a place. So their last objection is, where does he intend to go? The last two weeks we reflected on the fulfillment of Christ as the Messiah. It didn't look like what the Jews were expecting or what the world would tell us a liberator looks like. But Christ's fulfillment of God's plan in God's timing gives those that accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior the promise to one day see God's glory To those who fail to recognize God's provision of his son Jesus will not be the destination that Jesus is referring to. We remind ourselves each week, as I close here and just invite hospitality team, um, because each week in communion, we recognize that we have all attempted to diminish the authority of God over our lives, and in that we sin. As we reflected over the last two weeks through the Easter and the Holy Week, that God provided a path. That through his death and his resurrection, which brings him glory, he set the expectation that we believe that Jesus is the Lord and the Savior, the covering, the atonement of our sins, that we can see that place that he's referring to that we do have that assurance of salvation, that one day for eternity, we will fully experience the glory of God. And so we do that each week by, uh, through the act of communion. When we remind ourselves that God's provision by participating in the last meal that Jesus had with his disciples before being crucified, where he broke the bread and he told them that this is his body, that this is my body broken for you. And then drank from the cup and said, this is my blood shed for you. So in a moment, I'm going to close us in prayer. At that time, for those of you that are meeting that expectation of not of following the Old Testament law, but just of acknowledging who Jesus was, that he was holy, blameless, died on a cross for our sins, and that the only expectation that the Lord calls of us is that we submit and acknowledge that that's who Christ was. That's you. We invite you to come and take this, this meal to remember that salvation that you have in Christ Jesus. So if you want to make your way down the center aisles, return uh, down the side, um, just help, help keep, keep things a little less congested. Um, that's not you, that's okay. Just to invite you to uh, consider, what does it mean? What does it mean that Christ died on the cross for my sins? I invite you to, to think through that, reflect on that, uh, and to grab myself or, or Kent or Dante uh, afterward and to, uh, to unpack some of those questions you have. I'm going to close this in prayer um, as Jake makes his way up, and then feel free to uh, partake in, in communion afterwards. Father God, Lord, um, we love you. Lord, we're so grateful that uh, your glory is shown through the death, resurrection of your son, Jesus. That all throughout his life on this earth, everything he did was to bring you glory. That the expectations 
that the people in his day put on him and the expectations that we often put on him that don't align with your will, that he didn't succumb to those, that he knew what your plan was, what his purpose was that you gave him, that in all of those things, give you the glory. The Lord, I'm thankful for that salvation that we have in you. I'm thankful that we have brothers and sisters that can help guide us and direct us as we discern what the will of God is. That we have brothers and sisters that can help us understand what our time and our place is as we unpack what the will of God is for us. Lord, I'm thankful that you've given us the Holy Spirit, both in ourselves and in our brothers and sisters, to give us the wisdom and the discernment to understand all of those things, knowing that it comes from you, your Holy Spirit that speaks to us, that gives us the understanding of what it means to live that out today, tomorrow, for however long we're on this earth. Father, we love you. Praise your name. Amen.